Amen. Yeah. Let me read from 1 Chronicles 29 as we go to the Lord in prayer. King David, standing before all the assembly of Israel, prays this. He says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. We pray for us. Father, thank you for the experience that we just got to encounter over the last 10 to 15 minutes of opening up our lips and singing your praises. Father, you're so worthy of our praises. And if we didn't, if we didn't join creation in praying, creation would continue to, to praise to you. The trees would clap their hands. The rock would give cry, Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. Lord, I pray as we turn now to the uh, reading and the preaching and the teaching of your word, that you would empower me, that you would equip me, God, that you would magnify yourself and, and minimize me so that we can learn more about your greatness. We can learn more about who you are and and God, we, we just want to join you in the work that you're doing. We want to join you in what you're up to in our families' lives, in our individual lives, in the lives of our culture, society, and the life of this church. Will you open up our eyes so that we can see where you're working and join you in that work. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them to Nehemiah chapter 2. So Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning. Um. What we've seen is that Nehemiah was mightily used by God, right, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We're going to find out as we continue to dive into Nehemiah that Nehemiah was a man of fiery personality. He had incredible leadership uh, capacity. He had diplomatic wisdom. But it's so important that we remember how Nehemiah chapter 1 opened up. God does not do his work by the personality of man. It began with prayer, right? That's what we saw last week. How did Nehemiah join God in the work of rebuilding Jerusalem? It began with prayer. And as we learned last week, if you can remember, Jerusalem was just a representation of God. When the surrounding nations would look at the city of God, they're to get a picture or an accurate representation of who God is. But if Jerusalem is burnt and, and, and broken down, then, then what does that communicate about God? So God wants to restore his image. He wants to rebuild his image there in the city of Jerusalem. He's going to use Nehemiah to accomplish it. But in the new covenant, under grace, what we now note also is that the church is the representation of God, right? When people look at the church, what does that communicate about who God is? And I believe that God is wanting to rebuild his image in and through the lives of you and I as well. So that's what we're looking at. How does God go about building his church? And today, we're going to see four things in our text that God uses to rebuild his image here on earth as it is in heaven. So Nehemiah chapter 2. Our text today is verses 1 through 16, and I'm going to read all of it in its entirety and then kind of break it down for us, okay? So Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing that you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city... The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, would you send me to Judah, 
to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters also be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one in which I rode. And I went out by night to the valley gate, the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down in its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and expected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, as I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were, who were to do the work. All right, that's our text for today. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to see four things that God uses to rebuild His image here on earth as it is in heaven. And y'all, I'll be honest with you, some of these are fairly surprising. But for context's sake, what, what we have in today's text is that Nehemiah's moment has come. Right? We saw this last week. He'd been praying for four months that God would grant him favor in the eyes of King Artaxerxes. And finally, King Artaxerxes says, hey, what's going on with you? What do you want? And he says, I want to return. And I want to rebuild. And look at verse 8. The king granted me what I asked because the good hand of my God was upon me. So with God's favor resting on Nehemiah, empowering this journey, he begins the journey from, from Susa. That's modern-day Azerbaijan. Anybody know where that is on the map? Yeah. Look that one up you get home, okay? Azerbaijan, that's Susa, the citadel. All the way down to Jerusalem, a journey of about 900 miles, and he wants to get a, uh, really get a feel for the state of the city himself. How bad is this damage? So keen insights here from Nehemiah chapter 2, and here's point number one for you. Nehemiah built Jerusalem with providence, okay? It's all by providence. It's so easy for us to read the book of Nehemiah and begin to magnify this personality, to see his incredible leadership. I mean, what he's able to accomplish, and we're going to get in here in just a second, is really remarkable. This is a remarkable person. But I don't want us to magnify Nehemiah at the expense of minimizing the providence of our God. Because this work of rebuilding Jerusalem was all by God's providence. Right? What is, what is providence? Providence refers to God orchestrating all of life's contingencies and actions to affect exactly what he wants, when he wants, with whom he wants, and where he wants. It's God orchestrating and, and holding all things together. In the words of R.C. Sproul, God's providence is that God never rolls the dice. Right? Nothing is left up to chance. Like He is holding everything within his hands. And this work of rebuilding, y'all, is dependent on providence. It's not depending on personality. It's dependent on providence. Look at verse 12 of our text. Nehemiah himself said, listen, I hadn't told anybody what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Do you see that this vision for rebuilding began with God? It didn't begin with Nehemiah. 
It didn't begin with his burden. It didn't begin with his, his brokenness over the state of the city. It began with God. God put this vision within Nehemiah's heart. It's all about providence. Everything, church, is, is orchestrated by providence. If you remember, we studied Ezra before we went into the book of Nehemiah. And what I told you was about King Cyrus. You all remember King Cyrus? So from Ezra chapter 1, King Cyrus was the first Persian king that released the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. Cyrus is pretty unique because Cyrus was actually raised up, created, and named all because of God's providence. About 150 years before Cyrus issued his decree, the prophet Isaiah said this about a man named Cyrus. It says, God, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will fulfill all of my purpose. Of Jerusalem she shall be built, and of the temple her foundation shall be laid. It's remarkable. That by God's providence, more than 150 years before Cyrus releases this return, says, you know what? One day I'm going to raise up a man. I'm going to give you his name. 150 years ahead of time. His name is going to be Cyrus, and he's going to be my servant. He's going to be my shepherd. He's going to accomplish my purposes. He's going to release my people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. 150 years. This is all based on God's providence. This return, this rebuild is dependent upon providence. Church, we have got to grow in our trust of God's providence. I think it's really easy, if you're anything like me, it's really easy to see what is broken, right? Maybe relationships, maybe your family, maybe something in your work. Like, you know what is broken, and you know that is not God's will for this situation, but you just see that it's still broken. And what does that lead us to conclude? God just must be hands off here. He's not doing anything about it. So apparently he's just kind of hands off. And what happens is slowly you begin to put your faith in your circumstances. You begin to put your faith in the things that you see instead of resting and trusting in the providence of God that you may or may not see. We have got to build our faith, church, in the providence of God because the truth is, y'all, he's always working. Like he is always at work. And, and if, you, if you believe that he isn't, if you don't believe that he's provident, you're going to be led to think that it's all about you. That if this broken thing is going to be rebuilt, then I guess it depends on me. Because God's not doing anything. So it has to be on me. And church, that's just a really, really dangerous thought. And I just want to encourage you this morning. Acts chapter 17 is a real encouraging um, verse. It's actually, it's actually pretty, pretty sanctifying. It's what Paul preaches in the city of Athens. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Did you hear that? Let's go ahead and start that off, okay? The God who made the world and everything in it. He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That you're breathing right now is a reality of his providence. It has nothing to do with you. You didn't do anything to do it. He says you're not, he is not served by human hands. So listen, church. Just because you see something that's broken, you don't need to go, well, I guess it's just up to me. Don't wake up and go, you know what, you know what Richmond Hill could really use? I guess a dose of me. You know, or you kind of elbow your spouse and you go, man, my spouse, real piece of work. You know what they need from me? Me. But we convince ourselves when we're like, well, we don't see God doing anything. So we begin to convince ourselves that it's all up to me in church. Let me just encourage you. He doesn't need you. He's provident. He's always at work. We can place our faith in his providence, not in your own personality. Henry Blackaby in his incredible book, Experiencing God, if you've never read it, I highly recommend it. He says, we don't choose what we will do for God. You hear that? We don't choose what we will do for God. He invites you to join him where he wants to involve you. And what that means is he's already at work. We don't need to wake up and go, where should I work today? We wake up and go, God, where are you working today? 
And then we get invited into his work. Jesus, the God-man, modeled this dependency on providence. Did you all know that? Jesus says, my father is always working. You know what else he said in the Gospel of John? I only do what I see my father doing. Jesus' work is really just, just initiated by God's promise. He just joins God in the work of redemption. Church, we've got to grow in our dependence on providence. Let's not magnify Nehemiah here. Let's realize this is all a providential work of God. Nehemiah was dependent on providence as exampled in his prayer life. Right? He knew, I'm a slave. How is this king ever going to release me from his presence to return to Jerusalem to get this work done? Not to mention, y'all, King Artaxerxes in our text today is the same King Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 4 that forbid the Jews from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Ceased the work, would not let them build. How is that man's opinion going to be shifted? It's not going to be by Nehemiah. It's going to happen by the providence of God. We see God's providence. I mean, we see Nehemiah dependent on providence and in provision. He didn't have what it took to rebuild this city, so he needs the timber. So he requests for that. All of this was God's providential work. So church, I just want to encourage you. Stop thinking, I wonder what I should do for God. Instead, believe, God, I believe you're working right now in this situation all around me. How can I join you in your work, not have some runway for your own? Y'all see the difference? Okay. So providence. Nehemiah was 100% dependent upon providence. Yet, point number two, it did not keep him from planning. God rebuilt Jerusalem with providence, but he also did it with Nehemiah's planning. In church, Nehemiah was a gifted planner. When his time came to make his requests known to the king, he gave him an approximate timeline, how long this project's going to last. That's in verse 6. He laid out, hey, I need, I need this many letters to this many governors of the province beyond the river so I can have some safe passage. He said, I need some timber, and this is exactly where I can get that timber. If you'll go ahead and write that letter for me too, that'd be helpful. He laid out meticulous plans. And then look at verse 11. When he finally got to Jerusalem, he rose in the night, he and a few good men with him, and told no one what God had told him to do, and, and he went out by night and began to inspect those gates. Why would he inspect the gates? So he could create some plans. So he could understand what the scope of this work is going to require. What I'm saying, y'all, is that although Nehemiah was dependent on providence, it didn't interfere with his planning. Anybody frustrated by that? Right? Like, how can both of those things exist? But here's the reality of Scripture. Whether we can cognitively understand it or not, the reality of Scripture is that God does everything by His providence. The other reality of Scripture is that you and I have responsibility. That man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are not contradictory to one another. They don't interfere with one another. They actually live in harmony with one another. Anybody else frustrated cognitively by this thought? Because how can those both things be true? Like, how could God be providential and sovereign, and yet how can we be dependent upon some responsibilities of mankind? All right, let me just try to simply give, give an answer. And I don't have all the answers, but here's a simple one. God, in His providence, designed it that way. That's the way He established it. That's the way He created it. He created His plans to be accomplished by His providence through your responsibility. Take, take creation, okay? Adam and Eve. He looks at Adam and Eve, and he creates them. Did they have anything to do with that? Was that dependent on Adam and Eve? Were they great creations? No, it's all God's sovereignty. It's all God's providence. They created Adam and Eve, but then, Adam, then God gave Adam and Eve responsibility. Told them, I want you to cultivate life. I want you to demonstrate what it means to have abundant life. That's your responsibility. You know why? Because that was God's providential plan in creation. 
They work, they work in harmony with one another. God established it that way. Let me give you another example because you're like, that, that doesn't make sense, okay? Let me give you one more. Jesus himself looked at Peter and the rest and said, I'm going to build my church, right? The God-man said, I will build my church. Is that dependent on anybody here? No. Praise God for that. Because if that was dependent on me, I'd be crushed right now. God builds his church. We follow him. He says, I will build my church. And yet, before he ascends, he says, you build my church. Go and make disciples of all nations. What? He says, I'm going to do it. But the means through which I'm going to accomplish it is you being responsible to the task that I've given you. These things work in harmony with one another. God's providence, man's responsibility. And Nehemiah got that. Nehemiah planned well, but he was never dependent upon his own plans. He was always placing faith in the providence of God. Church, these things have to go hand in hand. Because this is what happens. If you see something that needs to be rebuilt, and you only rely on providence, you're like, well, providence will take care of it. What that means is you'll just kind of lay back in your easy boy, and you'll miss an opportunity to join God in his work. But if you only rely on your own responsibility, you know what's going to happen? You're going to burn out because God's work and God's task is too big for you. It requires him to accomplish that. So like the apostle Paul, we live within this tension. You want to hear this tension? This is Paul. He says, for this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that he powerfully works within me. He says, providentially, he gives me his power. He gives me his energy. You know what I do with all that? I toil. It's both and. It's God's providence. It's man's planning. Was that satisfying? Probably not. It's a deep one. It's a deep one. So how does God go about rebuilding his, his, his image? He does it through providence. He does it through planning. But let me give you point number three. What I see in our text today is he also does it with patience. Ooh, we're about to step on toes. Patience. Church, God is so, so patient. One of my favorite authors is a man by the name of Wendell Berry. You probably haven't heard of him, but he's a fictional writer. He, he lists these, these, he writes a ton of novels that are all through the lenses of different fictional characters, all in this one fictional city called Port William, Kentucky. It was written in the late middle, middle 18, 1800s. Uh, the setting is 1800s. Beautiful writing, beautiful poetry. What he really captures well is the, the beauty of a small town life, something that we get to experience here where you get to kind of live unhurried, you get to kind of know each other, you get to actually have a sense of community. Wendell Berry's writings really encapsulate that. But he has a book named Jaber Crow. Jaber is the name of the local barber in that town. And, and one day, Jaber is wandering around kind of the outskirts of, of Port William, Kentucky. And this is what William Berry writes about his wandering. He says, I was in the woods, thickety in places. It was impossible to hurry there. And so I settled myself into patience. That's just beautiful poetry. Let me read it again. I was in the woods, thickety in places, and it was impossible to hurry there, so I settled myself into patience. What happens when you try to hurry your way through thickets? Any of y'all grow up in the South? It's going to tear you up. Thorns and, and thistles, y'all, that's risky business if you try to hurry your way through. The only way you can get out of thickets and thorns is to settle yourself into patience. Let me tell you something, y'all. You want to join God in the work of rebuilding anything in God's will? That is thickety work. It is risky it is messy. And y'all, I'm going to hit on this a little bit later. It is riddled with opposition. This is a spiritual war and it is not going to be clean sailing. It's going to be hard. It is thickety work. And if we cannot learn how to settle into patience, it's going to cut you up. 
right? How human is it for us to see something that needs to be rebuilt? Like get a vision for something that God wants to accomplish, and we just launch straight into it. In our zeal, we just pull trigger, right? Ready, fire, aim, and we go straight into it. We have zero concern for God's timing. Oftentimes, we, we want things, God's purposes to be done, but we don't want anything to do with the discernment of God's timing. Church, we have got to learn God's timing. We've got to learn to settle into patience. And I'm going to show you here in a second how Nehemiah did that. But I just want to affirm, patience is countercultural for us. Right? If you're American in the room, patience is not a value that we possess. Truth? Right? We, we are promoted, given raises, praised for the volume of things that we can get done. For the number of bulls you can grab by the horn, for as many products as you can push out on your assembly line. That's what we are known for. But y'all, the kingdom of this country is not the kingdom of our God. Parker Palmer is an author, and he writes that the primary metaphor of America is manufacturing. We get it. We get efficiency. We get productivity. We know how to get things done. Truth? It's what we're known for. But the primary metaphor of the kingdom of God is agriculture. Listen to some of scripture about the kingdom of God. James in chapter 5 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. He doesn't make it happen. He receives it. He waits on it. Listen to Jesus in Mark chapter 4. He says, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter some seed on the ground, and he sleeps, and he rises, nights and day. Sleep, rise, sleep, right. And then he goes, and then, then the seed sprouts, and it grows. He knows not how. He didn't make that happen. He didn't produce it or manufacture it. He was just faithful. He planted a seed. He watered it. And guess what happened? Over time, the kingdom of God began to grow. Church, when God rebuilds something, we have got to be patient. It's patient work. In Nehemiah, we're going to look at this in chapter 2. Nehemiah really did this so well. Like, although a man of action, Nehemiah settled into patience. And let me tell you about this man of action. He was able to accomplish the task of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Anybody know how long? 52 days. To arouse an apathetic people, to accomplish a task of that magnitude in 52 days, that's production. And we think, that's a producer. But no, 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 don't overlook our text today because he did it with patience. All right, first, as we saw last week, he began praying for favor in the month of Chislev. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 2, verse 1, his answer was granted in the month of Nisan. That's four months. Four months transpired by the time he began to pray, by the time his prayer was answered. Patient, patiently waiting. He didn't just conclude, well, God's not doing anything. I better do it myself. No, 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 patience. He was patient. Secondly, once the king released him, uh, Gulfstream didn't exist back then. 900-mile journey from Azerbaijan to Jerusalem. You know how long that probably would have taken him? Uh, at minimum, two months. At minimum. Y'all, how many of you get frustrated to microwave your dinner? It's not a value we possess, but for two months. And this man was broken over the city of Jerusalem, full of zeal and passion to see this problem fixed. But for two months, he's just got to ride a donkey or a camel over and over and over. And you would think, after two months of finally getting there, he's, he's going to just get there and fix everything. And look at verse 11. What's he do? I went to Jerusalem and was there for three days. What, what did he do for three days? We don't know. 
But apparently he wasn't in a hurry. Oh, he was patient. Church, God rebuilds his kingdom, his image with patience. It's, it's the story of our scripture. God has always been patient. Let me give you some examples. Right? God promised Abraham an heir, right? Abraham had to wait 25 years before that provision was provided. God promised Joseph authority. Joseph had to wait 13 years before it was granted, and most of that waiting was where? Prison. Moses shared God's burden for Israel's slavery, and he waited 40 years in the wilderness before joining God in the work of redemption. God promised Israel a return to Jerusalem after the exile. But Zechariah and Zerubbabel and Haggai and Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah and everybody else had to wait at minimum 70 years before that promise was fulfilled. Jesus, Jesus at age 12 knew what he was about. He looked at his parents and said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? I know why I'm here. And what did he do? He subjected himself for the next 18 years to his mother and his father as he grew in wisdom and stature with both God and man. Why wait? He just waited until he joined God in the work of redemption. Jesus Knew that the father wanted him to raise Lazarus from the dead. So what did he do? Did he hurry up and get there? Just waited an extra three days, make sure he's good and dead. Then raised him from the dead. Waited patiently. Jesus has promised to return and forever rule and reign. And here we are, 2,000 years removed, learning, still trying to learn how to settle into patience. Church, the kingdom of God is built with providence. It's built with planning, but it is also built with patience. It's an essential ingredient. And it's one I fear that we struggle to learn as Americans. Because, listen, the reverse of this is, is, is pretty scary. What, what I mean is if we don't learn patience in working with God, our impatience could get us into a lot of trouble. Our impatience could, could get us actually opposing the work of God. Let me give you another example, okay? Abraham promised an heir. God ain't coming through. I guess I better take matters into my own head. What's he do? He creates Ishmael, the father of all the Arabs, the father of Islam. Dire consequences? I think so. Joseph, unwilling to wait, boasting about the authority of his, his dreams. And God's like, man, you gotta, we got some work to do. 13 years in prison and in slavery. Even while he was in prison, he told the cupbearer, hey, get me out of here. When you get back to Pharaoh, remind him of me. The cupbearer totally forgot. You know why? And that story is the providence of God. Didn't want him to remember so he can continue to learn what it means to wait with patience. Moses, burning with zeal over the slavery of Israel. What'd he do? Murder. Could you imagine how Moses felt when he received the Ten Commandments? Thou shall not murder. All because he was unwilling to wait for the timing of God. Church, we've got to learn patience. I see people all the time miss an opportunity to join God in his work, whatever it is, all because we're unwilling to wait. Let me give you a few examples. Listen, I know your job is horrible. Like I know that you hate your job and in your mind you know this could never be God's will for me. How many times we say that? You know it. I hate this thing. This God has so much better for me. I know this could never be God's will for me. In fact, I should quit. And I, you know why I know I should quit? I've prayed about it. And I'm using quotations. I'm going to step on toes, okay? I'm using quotations because you've prayed about it. You know how often and easy it is to pray about something just to affirm your own desires? You can hear what you want. We always do. And usually when we say, listen, I've prayed about it, you know what else that does? It puts a wall up. It says, if you want to disagree with my decision, you're actually disagreeing with God. Because I've prayed about it. 
So we separate ourselves from that decision and any accountability. So you've prayed about leaving that job, but church, let me just ask you, have you waited? Have you been patient? Oftentimes what's needed is just patience. Listen, I know that that relationship is painful for you, that you're hurt. You just know being in that relationship, whatever it is, could never be God's will for your life, and you've prayed about it. But let me just ask you, church, have you waited about it? Oftentimes, we let our hurt drive our decisions rather than the gospel of Christ. Listen, I know that God has called many in this room to ministry. And you're eager. You're ready to jump in. You're ready to move to that city or to that country. I get it. I know. Ready, fire, aim. Pretty much the operating system of my life, okay? But have you waited? So easy. We, it's so easy for us to see God's purpose in something and totally miss God's timing in something. Both are essential. Essential ingredients to the work of God. Because let me warn you. As a mentor warned me a couple years ago, he said, Andrew, be careful. A lot of Ishmaels get created in seasons like this. When you're so restless, and it's really anxiety driving all of your hyperactivity, instead of the presence of God, which is never anxious, never in a hurry, never worried. The heavens are his throne. The earth is his footstool. You know what I'm picturing right now? Recliner. He's not pacing. He's not worried about how things are going to play out. His providence is going to lead it. But we get so restless and so anxious. But be careful. A lot of Ishmaels get created in seasons like that. So Nehemiah knew, man, rebuilding is thickety work. So he settled into patience. And let me close with one more insight today. He rebuilds in the face of pressure. Nehemiah had faith in providence. He had laid out meticulous plans. He was extremely patient. But none of that kept Nehemiah from facing many pressures. Church, pressure should be expected in the task of rebuilding. And listen, I'm going to talk extensively on this in Nehemiah chapter 4 in just two weeks. But, but I just want to say it right now. We are in a spiritual war, y'all. Joining God in His work is an actual enlistment into warfare. And in our text today... The primary mode of opposition or pressure for Nehemiah is in these characters, Sanballat and Tobiah. Look at verse 10. And later in our text, we're going to see another character called Gershom the Arab. But for today, we just see Sanballat and Tobiah. Verse 10 says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel constant pressure through the hands of these men in Nehemiah's life. And again, doing a deep dive in, in chapter 4, but, but let me just say this real quick about these characters, a little, little character study. Who is Sanballat? All right, what we know is that Sanballat was a Babylonian name, not Jewish, not from the nation of Israel. He was a Babylonian. He was the governor of Samaria, which is the kingdom just north of Israel. So for Nehemiah to get from Azerbaijan all the way down to Jerusalem, he has to walk right through Sanballat's backyard, okay? We also know from extra-biblical sources that Sanballat was unbelievably wealthy, a worldly, worldly man. He had no spiritual interests. He was only interested in furthering along his career by staying in the pocket of the Persian kingdom. So when someone comes around wanting to seek the welfare of God's people for God's image, that would have been like Mandarin Chinese to somebody like Sanballat. How could something spiritual drive your desires? He was too worldly for that. And we know that that type of person exists today too, right? 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14, a worldly person cannot accept the things of God. They're folly to him. He's indeed not able to understand them because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. 
Nehemiah and Sambalat, just they couldn't see eye to eye because Sambalat was just too worldly. But what about Tobiah? Tobiah is a little bit different because Tobiah is an actual Jewish name. It means Yahweh is good. Tobiah means Yahweh is good. That's the name, his, his meaning of his name. And in Nehemiah chapter 6, we learn that Tobiah is actually very well liked by the majority of Jews in Israel. In fact, we read that he has deep business dealings with the high nobles of Israel, and he actually has some pretty strong marital alliances. That's from Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 18. He was a power broker in Israel. But here's what's crazy about Nehemiah, I mean, uh, about Tobiah. So many commentators believe that this Tobiah in our text today is the same Tobiah that we read about in Ezra chapter 2. All right, I'm going to read it for you, so no need to turn there. Ezra chapter 2, Zerubbabel had received freedom and release to return to Jerusalem from King Cyrus, right? That's from Ezra chapter 2. And, but Zerubbabel is a smart leader. He knew if, if we're going to return all the way back to Israel, we better take a census. We better know who it is that's returning so that they actually have claim and stake in the land of Israel. And in Ezra chapter 2 verse 59, we read that many could not prove their father's houses or their descent whether they belong to Israel or not. Verse 60 goes on and says, and of those, the sons of Tobiah. Now, I don't know if this is the same Tobiah or not, but just play that out a second. What if it is? What if this Tobiah was just a, a Jewish guy who thought his descent was there in Israel? He, he, he was born to believe that Yahweh is good, and he goes, I'll be part of the return. I'll come down. I'll join in what God's doing. And Zerubbabel looks at him and goes, ah, sorry. Can't find you here in the census. We don't know if you actually belong to us or not. Tobiah, once believing that Yahweh is good, now, verse 10, displeased greatly that someone would come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Church, if, if that's the same Tobiah, here's a warning and something I see play out in my life and play out in all of our lives. Oftentimes, we miss the work of God because we're not paying attention to providence. Oftentimes we miss the work of God because we're not doing our responsibility in planning. Oftentimes we miss the work of God because we're just simply not willing to be patient. But a lot of times we miss the work of God because of bitterness, of hurt. What we're aware of as a one-year-old church is that many of you have come to our church hurting. Hurt from family members, hurt from friends, hurt from other believers, hurt from other churches, hurt from other church leadership. And it pains me to say this, but if you stick around here long enough, that probably will become your story at some point. Hurt is the most human emotion we could ever experience, isn't it? We all share it. It doesn't matter what religion or what socioeconomic class you exist. We all experience hurt, betrayal, wounds from others. But listen, church, like Tobiah, if you do not allow Christ to transform the pain that you're experiencing, you will always transmit it onto others. I'm going to say that again. If you do not allow God to transform your pain, you will transmit it. If you do not invite God to heal your heart, your heart can become so diseased and so deceived that as Hebrews 12 says, roots of bitterness will grow deeper into your life and they will spring up and defile many. To the point where you aren't just not joining God in his work. You're so bitter, you're opposing the work of God in your life. Church, it happens all the time. You can be so bitter and so hurt that you can convince yourself that I'm doing what God wants me to do, hating that other person. 
It happens all the time. We deceive ourselves because we don't let God transform our hurt. And y'all, this hurt into bitterness, it doesn't happen overnight, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's so gradual. It's so progressive. And this is the gradual slide that I see. When people get hurt, they get angry. Valid. Newsflash, it's not a sin to be angry. Really felt that for a long time. It's not to be sin to be angry and, and to sin on part of that anger, but anger is part of emotions. Jesus felt angry. So when we get hurt, we get angry. And what happens is one or two things. We want to make sense of our hurt. We want to know that what happened to me is, is valid, right? That the way that I feel is valid. So we do two th- one or two things to make sense of our hurt. The first is we start opening up our mouth about it. We call this in the Bible gossip or slander. We start talking about our hurt with people who weren't involved in that hurt. And the reason we're talking about it is just because we just want to know I'm not crazy, right? I just want somebody to, to pet me and tell me that, I, that it's okay to feel the way that I feel. They would feel the same way, and now I'm validated in my hurt, right? Human, human, to make sense of that. And if we don't talk about it, you know what else we do? We talk about it internally, We move into the echo chamber of our own minds and we go, I'm not crazy. I deserve to feel the way that I feel. But the result of both of these, gossip or internal echo chamber counsel, is the same. The result is I'm justified in feeling the hurt that I feel. And now that person is no longer someone that wounded me. That person is now my enemy. You get these lenses. You put your glasses on of, of hurt. And now when you see that person, you can't even think of anything good that they've done. Right? This is why when we sit down with marital counseling and you hear how much hatred is in the room, this has been built up for years. You've been wearing your glasses. You can't even see a good thing about that person anymore. All you see is the evil and the pain and the hurt. Oh, it happens all the time. We're human. We want to make sense of our pain, and that hurt becomes resent. That resent steeps, and over time it becomes hatred. And during this little journey all down bitterness lane, we can actually deceive ourselves to think that God is on our side, and we are justified in our sinful reactions to hurt. I think that might have been what happened to Tobiah. Tobiah, born to believe that God is good. Tobiah, hurt and rejected. Now Tobiah, bitter and resentful. So that now, if anybody seeks the welfare of the people of Israel, he stands opposed to it. Church, I want to encourage you as we close this morning to let Christ, through the Scriptures, transform your pain. Because He is always willing and able to do it. You don't know how? It's in Scripture. How God goes about healing your pain, it's called forgiveness. It's this powerful word called forgiveness that like, we just don't read much anymore in the scriptures, kind of bleeding right over it, because we're in this culture where it's like, it's valid for me to feel how I feel. It's like, yeah, man, I, I want to validate your emotions, but how you respond to your hurt is your thing. Like You're held accountable for that. That's the only thing that you can control. We want the fruit of the Spirit to be others' control. It's not. The fruit of the Spirit of Christ is self-control. You're responsible for how you respond to that pain. And y'all, the only way you can get that, that pain be transformed is through forgiveness. So, how do we forgive? You didn't think I'd give you that in one minute. I'm going to, okay? How do we forgive? We don't simply forgive by waking up going, I forgive you. Because the next day you're like, okay, I forgive you again. And I forgive you, and I forgive you, I forgive you, and I forgive you. And you're, you're like willing yourself to forgive, but that pain still exists, doesn't it? You still hate them. You still don't like them. But listen, I don't want you to mishear me. At, some, at the deepest level, forgiveness is an act of the will. 
It is always going to be a conscious choice to extend forgiveness to somebody, whether they deserve it or not, whether they're asking for it or not. It's always going to be an act of the will. It's just the emotions behind that forgiveness can be healed over time through Christ. And here's how it happens. We have to let Christ transform our pain by doing this. For a brief moment, take your eyes off of your pain and put them on Jesus. As hard as that is, like because that, that pain, that hurt can consume you, the way to get free from it is to take your eyes off of that pain for just a moment and to put it on Jesus. Instead of considering all the wrongs that somebody has done to you, I just want for a brief moment for you to consider all of the wrongs that were done to Jesus. That he was accused, that he was slandered, that he was betrayed, that he was flogged, that he was mocked, that he was slapped, that he was spit on, that he was forced around a crown of thorns, that he was pierced by nails through his hands and his feet, and eventually he died hanging alone on a Roman cross. Church, Jesus was wounded and hurt by a lot of people. But stay with me for a second. As we're considering Jesus, did you know he didn't deserve any of that? Like if you could, you've been hurt, right? I, I have hurt in my life. Even, even in the deepest part of my own hurt, if I can humble myself for like a brief second, I can at least acknowledge I probably did something to contribute to that, right? Not something we like to admit, but it's probably true. I've probably done something. Jesus couldn't do that. Jesus couldn't admit anything that he's done to invite the wounding and the hurting that he experienced. Hebrews says he was holy and undefiled. Paul says he knew no sin. Pilate said, I find no fault in him, yet crucify him anyway. The dying thief on the cross next to him said, surely this man has done nothing wrong. The onlooking centurion watching him hang on the cross said, certainly this was a righteous man. Church, he did absolutely nothing wrong, only to be maliciously wronged by others. And as we're considering Jesus, right, taking your eyes off of your own pain, trying to think about the pain of Christ, I want you to think about this. Right before he breathed his last, you know what he said? Father, forgive them. Can you grasp that? Like, I'm unwilling to forget the, forgive the person that rides my tail down 144 because I'm going 51. Y'all know you're that person. And I, and I don't like you. And, and I, I have this unforgiveness in my heart. But yet all that Jesus endured, the last thing he says is, Father, forgive them. And he says, it is finished. Church, it was our sin that wounded Christ so. And the first step for you to letting your pain be transformed is to comprehend the radical forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, listen, you can forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's really hard to forgive somebody else when you're unaware of how radical you have been forgiven by God. So here's how we're going to conclude today. Our team's going to come back up and play, and we're going to remember the forgiveness of Christ in the taking of communion. Communion is a sacrament of the church available for the believer in Christ where we collectively get to visibly preach the gospel to one another. So what I mean by that is that I just verbally preached the gospel, right? With my mouth, with our words. Communion is an opportunity we get to visibly preach the gospel. We get to see with our eyes Christ's body that was broken for us. We get to taste with our lips the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And church, in that symbolic act of communion, what we get to see is, is we actually get to see the hurt of Jesus. We get to see the wounding of Jesus. But we also get to see the forgiveness of God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we read this. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. 
So as our team begins to hand out our communion, this is what I want you to do. I just want you to take a moment, close your eyes as the team plays, and I want you to reflect on the riches of Christ's grace.